in about September last year, uh, Lil was preaching. And uh, I think she's probably the reason we decided to come back. Not that all of you all weren't great, but yeah, yeah. I am just telling it like it is. No. (laughs) Uh, uh, Everything was great. We stuck around. We we would have stuck around anyway. But Lil, I think, really sealed the deal. Uh, To have someone like Lil, this diminutive elderly woman, uh, who if you maybe met when she wasn't preaching, you'd be like, oh, she's lovely. And because she is. But when she was up here, she had authority. She spoke with power, and I thought, you know, that's the kind of person that I want my kids, especially my daughter, to um, to have mo- you know have modelled. Um, so I don't know exactly why I say that, except to say let's keep Lil in our prayers, I guess, because um, I think if uh, Lil is such a gift to this church and and the church, so uh, yeah. Look, um, for those who don't know me, um, my name is not White Jesus. It's um, <laughs> my name is Matt, uh, and I'm married to Ashley, and we have uh, three kids uh, who are off in kids' church: Evie and Addison and Charlie. Uh, the boys are twins; they turn two this week. So I am well and truly in the valley of the shadow of death, and <laughs> uh, but that's that's all right. Uh, it's really great to be with you and I'm thankful for the invitation um, to, to speak, uh, to preach this morning. And um, let, let, me, let me quickly pray. God, may your word be a, a light unto our feet and may it guide our way that we might be a light to the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in November of the year 300. And 61, Julian became the emperor. Let's see if this works. No. No. Oh, there it goes. It really lets me know that it's on. All right. Uh, So this is Julian. uh, And uh, he became the Roman emperor in the year 361. And Julian has the unfortunate honour of of having gone down in history uh, with the name Julian the Apostate. Uh, or, if you want to put it in more modern terms, Julian the backslider. So, who, who would like to die and go down in history with that title? Not so much. Uh, why the apostate? Why was he known as the apostate? Well, his uncle, who was the Emperor Constantine, or Constantine, some of you would know that name, uh, he had converted to Christianity. And his father, also a Roman Emperor, Constantius II, was an Arian Christian, um, so a non-Trinitarian Christian. Uh, he didn't act very Christian, actually, but, but he claimed to be a Christian. Julian, around the time that he turned 20, converted from Christianity, which he'd been brought up, with, brought up in since he was a child. Around the age of 20, he converted back to paganism. Hence, the apostate. Uh, and, and he's been remembered as the apostate, but it's kind of it's a little bit unfair because um, Julian is actually an alright guy, despite the fact that he converted to paganism. It might sound strange, but um, he was certainly more uh, honourable, certainly, wow, 
uh, certainly more intelligent, more courageous and more virtuous than his father and his uncle Constantine. Um, he was, a, uh, as far as Roman emperors go anyway, he was a pretty, he was a pretty good guy. Uh, his father, for instance, had been uh, ruthless in his suppression of heretics. And by heretics, uh, he meant Trinitarians. Uh, so, he'd, yeah, he'd not been super keen on uh, Trinitarians. Whereas Julian had banned violence against Christians, even though he was a pagan. He'd sometimes turn a blind eye to it, though, so he wasn't not saying he was perfect. But, uh, but it's certainly better than his, father, his, his so-called Christian father. Um, but Julian was passionate about the old religion. And he went about trying to shift the Roman Empire back to paganism. He tried to not just convert himself, but he wanted to shift the whole empire back to its religion of old. But he had some trouble doing that. By the time of Constantine, uh, some estimates suggest that half the empire had been converted to Christianity. And it was illegal at the time. It was illegal. Um, but the other thing that made it hard for Julian was that uh, the lives of Christians, the lives that they lived, made it hard to convince people to leave Christianity behind. Julian is pro- perhaps most famous for having said this to his pagan priests. And this is... There we go. He said this. Uh, so basically what he's doing is uh, he's... Um, He's decided that um, he wants his priests to do more good stuff. <laughs> so he gives them these directions, okay? He says, In every city, establish frequent hostels in order that strangers or foreigners may profit by our benevolence, by our goodness. I do not mean for our own people only, but for others also who are in need of money. I have but now made a plan by which you may be well provided for, uh, be provided for this. For I have given directions that 260,000 litres of corn shall be assigned every year for the whole of Galatia and 32,000 litres of wine. Uh, wine, by the way, was used for cleansing water, basically. Water wasn't all that safe and so they put some wine in water. That's probably the, that's probably the reason, I think. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he was saying, get them at the hostels, get people in need and just get them tanked. I don't think, it was the, I don't think that was the direction. But I ordered that one-fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests and the remainder be distributed by us uh, to foreigners and beggars. And here's the key part. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, or his name for Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone is able to see that our people lack aid from us. In other words, he was outraged that the Christians supported not only those poor folks who were Christian, but those who weren't. And Julian wanted his own high priest to emulate this example, even while he was trying to get rid of Christianity. Julian's project was pretty doomed from the start, though, for at least one simple reason. So, the pagan Greek culture he esteemed 
may have included hospitality to strangers and giving to beggars as part of its tradition, and it did, but it nowhere encouraged giving to all people, freely, regardless of their character, simply out of love for their humanity. It didn't teach that. Nor did it encourage things like visiting those in prison, providing for the poor from temple treasuries, ceaselessly feeding the hungry, providing shelter for any who might have need of it, loving God and neighbour as its highest good, priestly poverty or the poverty of, uh, of, the, of the clergy, sorry Andy, uh, and the rescue of unwanted infants left in the elements, which was the main way to get rid of the babies you didn't want. Pagan, uh, Greek pagan culture didn't teach anything like those things. Unlike with pagan social practice, Christian love was not limited to equals, allies, relatives or citizens. None of those things emerged from paganism, but rather were the practical outworking of a revolution that had begun with a Jewish prophet and his small band of followers. A revolution that had changed the world under the noses of emperors and generals and wealthy pagan priests. The problem for Julian was that the kind of paganism he wished to revive never actually existed. His was a paganism irreversibly shaped by the transformation that Christianity had brought upon the world. So the question is this. Why did uh, the Christians behave in this way? Why did they behave in this way? What gave rise to the compulsion to care for only one's own group, which was fairly normal, but also those outside of the group. Well, let's consider the story that these Christians told, the story that they saw themselves as being a part of. The story begins, or yeah, earlier in the story, over a thousand years earlier, We have the Hebrews emerging from Egypt in what we call the Exodus. I just think that's the coolest artwork, by the way. God called Israel out of Egypt, brought them out, redeemed them, liberated them. And the nation was called out, not just because God arbitrarily went, yeah, you guys but because God had chosen a people to live under God's rule as God's people to be a light to the nations, as Isaiah says, a light to the nations. And then, not long in the story after that, this nation ends up at Mount Sinai, in the desert, or in the wilderness anyway, and they receive from God the law. God's law. And in it, they're constantly reminded where they've come from. Constantly, they're reminded that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the basis for why you guys are going to do what I'm calling you to do. Because I called you out of Egypt. I called you out of slavery. 
so that you shouldn't be slaves anymore. Because Israel knew what it was to live in the midst of injustice, right? They knew what that was. They'd been slaves for 400 years. But now that they'd been liberated from slavery, they were meant to be different to those that had subjected them to slavery. God called them out of Egypt so they could be different to Egypt. He didn't just call them out of Egypt, he called the Egypt out of them. And so the law given to Moses shows Israel how to be different to Egypt. How do we do that? Well, here it is. Now that law is, oh, it's, yeah, it's often difficult to understand. Um, I, one of the subjects I lecture at Mauling is Old Testament introduction. It just doesn't get easier. <laughs> and the reason is because we live so long after that period. The laws are so difficult for us to understand because it's such a different time, it's such a different context, such a different social setting. And most of them just make no sense to us. But there's some things we can understand, right? Here's a few. This is some uh, notions of justice in the law. The Ten Commandments we know, you know, don't worship other gods and probably don't kill people and stuff. Um, and some other things. And, um, but l- there's also love your neighbour as yourself and take no vengeance from Leviticus 19. Or from Deuteronomy 14, financial redistribution to the poor every third year. So every third year there would be, out of the, what's been collected, uh, like in, in offerings and that, a lot of that money would be given out to the poor. Or, there's quite a few from Leviticus 25, here's just a sample, um, they, they should rest the land every seventh year. Give the land a break. And the animals. In other words, good environmental stewardship. From the same chapter, um, return all land to the family that originally owned it uh, every 50 years. So Every 50 years, if for some reason your family had lost its land, it, it had gone into debt and it had to sell it, it would get it back. And as a result, you couldn't have an elite class of you know, landowners who owned everything. Well, you weren't meant to anyway. Everybody had land, and especially in an agricultural society, right? People had land they could farm, they could provide for themselves and their families. Nobody should be able to go hungry, for example. Same chapter, fairness in financial matters. So, when you do business, do it honestly. Uh, And then shifting over to Deuteronomy 15, another chapter with a lot of this stuff. Forgiveness of debts every seven years. And that's not when somebody lends from you, uh, 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 when you lend money to someone, not seven years later, forgive it, but like the same seven years, every seven years across the nation. So if you lend in the sixth year, and it tells you, the, the scripture tells people, don't be stingy. If somebody is in need and you lend to them, it's for people in need, not someone who wants to start a tech company. And, um, and so, they, you still have to lend. And then a year later, you're like, oh well, that's the, that's the kind of justice that you see in the law. 
It says that there should be no one in need among you. No one. There should be no poor in the land. And if there is anyone in need, next point, open your hand to them. You know, in, um, in, in Mark, Jesus uh, says, uh, the woman comes and breaks the alabaster thing and, and then um, the disciples get all enraged about it. Uh, and he's, and, and he's, they're like, hey, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And Jesus says, but you'll always have the poor among you, but this, she's done a beautiful thing and all that. You know he's quoting from Deuteronomy 15? It's a quote from Deuteronomy 15. And that passage doesn't say, oh, there's always going to be poor, so don't do anything about it. It says, there's always going to be poor, so never stop giving. That's what the chapter says. Interesting. Anyway, that's the tangent. Uh, and then finally, the release of slaves every seven years um, so occasionally you would have someone who got into so much debt that they would sell themselves as a slave to um, their fellow Israelites. And the law says, after, in, on, in that same seven-year cycle, you have, to, you have to release them. And not only release them, you have to give them enough to start over. Justice was written into the heart of what it meant for Israel to be faithful to the redeeming God that had liberated them from Egyptian slavery. Justice was at the heart of what it meant to be faithful to that God. Now, that justice wasn't always perfect. And, and actually, the laws don't always apply to outsiders. Sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, if you've got a slave who's an Israelite, release them. But if it's someone else, eh. Um, that's, so, the law hadn't, you know, it, it, we get a newer revelation in Jesus. Let's put it like that. We get, a, we get, a, we get an update. But... Um, but nonetheless, this law was the beginning, the beginning of a radical reorientation of what it meant to be human in light of God's love and justice. It teaches us, it begins to teach us, this is what it, it means to be truly human. And then as the story goes on, remember I'm telling a story, not giving you a legal lesson. Um, but as the story goes on, we get to the prophets of Israel later on. Because as time went on, Israel slipped into unfaithfulness in their covenant with God. Over and over again, actually. And God, in response, calls these prophets as messengers. To call Israel back to their vocation to be a light to the world. Remember, folks, remember the God that, you, that, that redeemed you out of Egypt? Remember how you know, justly and lovingly that God treated you, well, come on, let's get back on track. Let's, let's get it right. What were the two most common accusations made against Israel? Especially its leaders in the prophets. There's two major ones. One is idolatry. Worship, the worship of other gods. The second is injustice. And actually, I'd argue that those two things are together. We find injustice where we worship the wrong stuff. Right? We worship money, we get injustice. We worship ourselves, we get injustice. We worship pleasure or whatever, you know, we, we, we get injustice. But idolatry and injustice are the two things that the prophets constantly bang on about. So Micah, for example uses fairly graphic language to describe the treatment of the poor uh, in, um, by Israel's leaders. He says this, Listen, you heads of Jacob. The, he's not a subtle guy. Okay, Listen, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. 
Should you not know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin off them, break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a kettle, like flesh in a cauldron. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come uh, upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Something a little bit slightly more positive is Isaiah. Um, uh, Isaiah speaks to Judah when they think their worship of God is sufficient. They think we just do our thing, our worship thing, uh, we're all good. Well, this is what Isaiah has to say about that. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. when Jesus eventually arrives on the scene, things haven't changed all that much. The things that Micah and Isaiah and the prophets called for haven't really happened and the things they spoke against continue to happen. The nation at the time of Jesus is plagued by poverty, abuse of power, corruption, violence and all kinds of injustice. But Jesus comes teaching not just some general notion of justice. He doesn't just come into, uh, in, into the world and say, hey guys, just be just a bit more. He comes proclaiming the dawning of a new reality. The kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, in which daily bread is available for all, in which debts are forgiven And in which those who hunger and thirst for justice are satisfied. 
Jesus teaches about God's justice and it doesn't always go down well amongst those who assume that God's justice is just about people getting what they deserve. Let me give you a couple of examples. For one, he tells a story about a father whose son heads off with his inheritance of half the family's wealth as if the father were dead. Have you ever thought about... uh, That's really hard to see, but... um, Have you ever thought about the implication of saying, hey, can I have my inheritance now? (laughs) It's to say... It just, look, this would be easier if you were dead. Kind of wish you were, but you're not. So, just, just give me the cash. And so he does. He, he, he takes it and he squanders it. And if, it's hard to see, but there's, there's pigs and stuff there anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're black pigs because black pigs are the best pigs. Come to our place, our farm, and we'll show you. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, the son squanders half the family wealth. And upon his return, when he works out that he's not all that intelligent or great or um, whatever, uh, if you were in a Middle Eastern context in the first century and, and the son had come back, what you would expect that father to do is at the very least to beat the son. Possibly kill him depending on the uh, inclination of the father. That it would be well within his right, as was commonly understood, people would have gone, yeah, that's justice. I mean, the son has brought untold shame on the family. But, as we know, the father embraces the son and restores his place in the family including, this is the implication of the story, including his right to an inheritance. That's one story. Jesus tells another story about a landowner who hires workers. So he goes out to the the public square or wherever they they are and he hires some at 6am. Then he realises he needs more so he goes back out and at 9am he gets more workers. Same thing happens and he, at 12pm at midday he goes out and he does it again at 3pm and again at 5pm with just an hour left of the working day. He goes out, gets workers. Why do you think people, uh, so by the way, why do you think people would be still standing in the public square waiting for work at 5pm? They're desperate, why? They want to eat obviously, but why them? Why specifically these people, do you think? Why? Why? Lame? Yeah? Old? Elderly. Thank you very much. <laughs> Foreign. Yeah, maybe foreigners. Yep. Yeah, certainly no right, no sort of, well, rights is the wrong word, but um, rights. Yeah, <laughs> no rights. Uh, anything else? Disabled or, you know, lame? Possibly women, yeah. Possibly children, actually, yeah. Not good, Not good workers. For some reason. They're sick, maybe. All sorts of reasons. And this guy goes out and he goes, yeah, come on. 
come and come and work in the vineyard. And he does it. And then he lines them up. We know the story, right? He lines them up. And it's, and it's the people who got hired at 5 p.m. first in the line. He says, come and get your pay. And he gives them a denarius, which is a day's wage. He hands it out. Here's a denarius. And you can imagine the guys at the end of the line, they've been there for 12 hours. They're like, I'm going to get 12 days pay or at least something like that. This is a good day. And then the 3 p.m. mob gets to the front of the line and goes, here's a denarius. And they go, wait a second. There's something wrong something wrong here and then it gets to the end of the line and uh they get outraged we've been here for 12 hours they were here for one he says i gave you what i i gave you what i promised that i give you which if you read the story closely he says to the second batch of people at 9am i'll pay you what is dikaios it's a greek word for what is just i'll give you what is just and he does. He gives them what he promised. And what, what, was, what were they promised? What was just? What is just in this story is what they need. Everybody gets enough. Some got what they deserved. They worked a full day and they got a full day's wages. But others worked much less than that. But they still got what they needed to survive, to eat. Everyone receives what they need to live comfortably regardless of what they were able to contribute. Folks, that's apparently what God's justice is like. Justice is the restorative kingdom coming on earth, revealing God's love and mercy and grace. It's all things set right. It's all things as they were meant to be. And that kingdom, folks, is glimpsed through the actions of God's people. Now, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate the kingdom, demonstrate God's justice in his words. It's not just what he teaches, right? It's also the stuff that he does. It's his actions. And if you think Jesus' words made people upset, wait till you get to his actions. Jeez. Healing sick people. Forgiving sin. Challenging corruption in various ways. Eating and sharing fellowship with outcasts and unsavory people. Feeding the hungry. Embracing the unclean, like lepers, stuff like that. And ultimately, being willing to die for others, even those who hated him. That's God's justice, folks. This is what justice looks like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. All this stuff. Now, in our time, especially amongst our mob, we're tempted to ask a question like this. Doesn't Jesus call us to evangelize people? Shouldn't we be focused on that? Isn't doing justice just a distraction from the Great Commission? So, first thing to say is that evangelism is a crucial part of our vocation as followers of Jesus. We're called to proclaim the good news to the world. But it's important to realize that Jesus didn't draw a distinction between evangelism and doing justice. That is a modern creation. 
After all, if we're going to put it in strict terms, Jesus doesn't actually call us to evangelize people. He calls us to be people shaped by the gospel. He calls us to be people that embody the kingdom of God in our lives, in our church, in our community and in our world. And in doing that, we proclaim the good news. When our whole lives are shaped by the gospel, we will necessarily tell the world about the good news of Jesus and the kingdom. And when our whole lives are shaped by the gospel, we will necessarily live in such a way as to reflect Jesus in doing justice. We can't stop with evangelizing people since people aren't called by Jesus to make a decision. They're called to be disciples. And disciples follow after their master in everything. Everything. The Great Commission teaches us to make disciples, not converts, but disciples. And to do what? To baptize them and to teach them. Teach them what? To obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's the Great Commission. It's not just evangelism to the point of a decision. It's discipleship for the people that are converted. They obey. And folks, the Great Commission (laughs) is aimed at us. We obey all that Jesus commanded because that's discipleship. That's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The early church, going back to them, understood this. They didn't make unnecessary, and I would argue unbiblical, divisions between different aspects of their faith. This is why when the church was known for its radical love and justice that Julian complains about, even toward those who were not part of the church, the church also grew at an astonishing rate. You tell me anywhere in the world where the church has grown like it did in in the early centuries of the church. Nowhere. And yet, what were they known for? What were they? What were people complaining about? They just they do too much justice. They're too they love people too much and provide for the poor and stuff. Oh so annoying. Now here's the thing. Here's here's where it, here's the rub for us, I guess. When Jesus teaches his disciples about the time after his death, when he's preparing them for what's going to happen after he dies, but before he returns. And, and he's telling them what, what they're meant to do. He tells two parables. This is from, all from Matthew 25, right? The first was the parable of the ten bridesmaids. So you might remember this parable. It's, um, it's sort of a weird one. Uh, the ten bridesmaids, they're waiting for the bridegroom. But he's, he's running a bit late. Sort of the opposite of married uh, weddings these days. And, um, and some prepare... Some of the bridesmaids, I should say, prepare by taking extra oil for their lamps because it's night time and they've got lamps and so they're like, well, we've got to wait and see him and so they take some extra oil. But some of them don't. And then he shows up or, the, or he, they, they get told that he's coming and, and the, uh, the bridesmaids who don't have any oil say to the ones who do, hey, give us some of your oil, like, don't, don't be stingy and stuff. And they go, no, 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 like, hey, we prepared, like, we were ready for this and you aren't. And what ends up happening is that the ones who are prepared end up in the banquet and the ones who don't prepare are not in the banquet. What's the point of the parable? Well, in very simple terms, the parable is 
be prepared. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not uh, rocket science in a way. Um, be prepared. Hey, how you doing? Uh, in other words, be prepared for Jesus' return. The second parable he tells is this, right? Uh, I haven't got a slide for it. Uh, it's the parable of the talents. You remember the story, right? The master goes away and he says, hey, while I'm gone, look after my stuff. And, and he gives a bunch to one guy and a bunch, a bit less to another guy and a bit less to another guy. And he comes back and he says, hey, um, how'd you go? And the guy who had the most goes, I totally, um, you know, made more. And here you go. And he goes, great, great job. That's fantastic. This is my translation, by the way. And um, what's wrong, Addison? You can, no, you can't have communion bread just yet, buddy. Uh, neither you, Charlie. Um, and then the second guy, same thing. He goes, yeah, I made, I, I got a return on it. Great. And the last guy, oh, I didn't do anything. I was sort of a bit scared of you. So I put it in the ground and he gets a bit cut at him and he, and he, and he it's not, it doesn't go well for him. Now, this story is not about wise investment in the financial market, by the way. Uh, and it's not a story about using your talents for God. Because um, talents is a, it's a sum of money. It's not, it doesn't mean talent. Um, but what the story is about is if we read it closely, it's not, again, it's not necessarily that complicated. When the master is gone and before he comes back, be trustworthy with what you've been given. So this is going well. Hey, buddy, come up here. You can come here. Come on. Um, and so both the parables, are, uh, they want to stress, be prepared. When the master is gone... Before he comes back, be prepared and do what he's asked you to do. Hey, buddy. Do the work that you've been given in the meantime. So what's the work? Here's the key point. What is the work that we've been given in the meantime while Jesus is not with us, but before Jesus comes back? What do we have to be prepared to do? Matthew immediately afterwards says this, and I'm just cutting a bit out of the passage because it's long. Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. A stranger being a foreigner. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink and all the rest? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to me, uh, just as you did to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Okay, so this long story from the Exodus through the prophets all the way to Jesus and beyond the story given to us in the scriptures, this is the story that the early church took seriously. They understood the radical nature of Jesus' life, message, death, resurrection. And by the power of the Spirit, they were determined to be witnesses to God's kingdom in all that they did, all that they did. It reshaped their lives, both individually and collectively. 
such that their radical love and justice became scandalous to the powers of the world. They didn't make friends with the powers. It managed to win over the hearts of half the empire, even while Christianity was illegal and when, Christi- when Christians were persecuted. Imagine that. Like, hey, you want to like, come and be part of our community? We get like, persecuted all the time. And people are going, yeah, I do. Like, what on earth? Because they saw in that community a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It didn't matter that they were persecuted. It probably helped. But the point is that this early church, animated by this narrative, turned the world upside down. The question for us is, will we hear their witness to us? More importantly, will we obey the God of justice who calls us to embody his radical kingdom in our lives? Perhaps then our community would see a glimpse of the kingdom in the life of the church rather than the corruption and the abuse for which we're currently known. The question we must continually ask ourselves is this, what would it look like in our, in our church, in our community, in our world, if the kingdom came in its fullness? What would that look like? We need to have the imagination to think about that. When the kingdom comes, what's it going to be like? And I'm not just talking about the fact that the coffee will be better. Like, I mean that, I don't drink coffee, so I have no idea what it's like here. But, but questions like, would poverty exist? Would the environment suffer destruction because of human carelessness and human greed? Would innocent people languish in detention centres? Would Aboriginal people be faced with widespread racism, poverty and imprisonment in their own lands? And would they experience intergenerational trauma? Would loneliness exist in our community? And so on and so forth. Answering those kinds of questions will hopefully give us the imagination that we need to embody the kingdom. To go, if that's what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes, we're going to do it now. We're going to do it now. Jesus called us to participate in a kingdom of radical justice, a kingdom that will eventually come in its fullness in the future. In the meantime, we're called to be a signpost pointing to that beautiful future here in the present. We're signposts. Julian said, it's disgraceful that the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Gee, I hope we'd be known by this, for the same thing. Let's pray. God, we... Even though we live in the light of the resurrection, the kingdom coming is only partially done. And sin and death and injustice still exist in this world. And you've called us to live faithfully in that in-between time, time in between your resurrection and your second coming. Show us how to live faithfully, God. 
Show us how to live faithfully when the powers in our world exploit and exterminate and imprison when aid budgets are are slashed, when we're already not generous to begin with. When people uh, of different races experience racism regularly. When women experience violence in their homes by the ones who promise to love them. And God, you know all, all these things and all manner of things that happen in our world. Just help us to know how we can respond. For those of us who um, may have made the divisions in the past between justice and evangelism and worship and whatever else, help us to bring those things all together. Help us to be whole Christians. To conform to the whole of the image of Jesus. And to be a church that in its humble, slow-moving actions of justice is able to turn the world upside down. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.